I'm glad to um, be in the pulpit again after um, a month of way, although in some ways it's hard to say that this morning, and I appreciate Elry's prayers. It's been a very difficult uh, weekend for me in a number of ways. So you pray for me as I try to bring God's Word to you, and I'd like you to turn in God's Holy Word this morning for our Old Testament reading to Malachi, the third chapter, where we'll be reading verses 7 to 12. Malachi 3, verses 7 to 12. Hear now God's word. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith Jehovah of hosts. But you say, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye rob me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse, for you robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and prove me. Now wherewith, saith Jehovah of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast its fruit before the time in the field, saith Jehovah of hosts. And all nations shall call you happy, for ye shall be a delightfulsome land, saith Jehovah of hosts. And our New Testament reading is found in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, verses 23 and 24. And to set this in context, I would remind you that Matthew 23 is perhaps the most stinging indictment of the Pharisees, an extended polemic against them that comes from the lips of our Lord. And in the midst of his denunciations, he says in verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. But these you ought to have done, and not to have left the other undone. Ye blind guides that strain out the gnat, but swallow the camel. And thus far the reading of God's word. Covenant Community Church might well become known as the church of the overreaction. We're known for a number of things, but it's conceivable we could be considered the church of the overreaction. Well, what are we reacting to? What am I talking about? Well, we're very sensitive in this congregation to um, how the church has gained for itself the reputation of uh, desiring money from people, always looking for another offering. Another handout. Uh, my wife and I were away from vacation last Lord's Day, had occasion, as we don't usually, to uh, see some TV evangelist uh, on the TV, naturally. That's where they're called TV evangelists. And um, I, I must say, I was just overwhelmed at the uh, constant theme of send in money, send in money, uh, and, and how, it's, uh, how it's woven through these programs. I mean, it's not enough that... It's asked once in a prominent place, but I mean, it's over and over and over again. Commercial appeal. Um, 
In fact, the commercialism of the appeals was, was appalling to us. I won't mention names. I probably won't need to. But uh, right here in Orange County, we have those who make their appeal to send in money and become a member of the Eagle Club and get this wonderful statue that I will send you if you'll just send this offering. And I, and I look at that and I cringe in horror that the Lord of Heaven should have his ministry, provided it is his ministry, in some cases that's doubtful, but to have his ministry supported in that way with these hucksters. And so we react to that. Many years ago, well, nine years ago plus now, when Covenant Community Church was founded, uh, because of the scandals and the bad reputation and so forth, uh, we determined at that time that of the two different ways churches take offerings, we would take the least profitable approach, and we would have an offering box at the back of our auditorium, and God's people would take it upon themselves as they come in or leave to make their contribution. And we, of course, should remind them of that, but we wanted it to come from the heart for it to be spontaneous. We did not want to pass an offering plate. We don't want visitors to feel uncomfortable. And those of you who are visiting with us today, you chose the wrong day to come because today's the one day we're going to preach about giving. And that's why we may be the church of the overreaction. Because we are reacting to the terrible approach to money in so many churches and, and to the uh, implication or the aspersion on the part of unbelievers that this is all we care about, we really minimize that here. And yet God has blessed us blessed us with ability to pay two pastors and to run a school program and so forth. Um, I don't feel badly about that. But everyone who hears that we do that tells us, you take in a lot more money if you pass the plate. Well, probably we would. But we don't want it to be that kind of thing. We want it to be spontaneous. But you know, spontaneity doesn't mean that you shouldn't be educated in how to be spontaneous. That may seem contradictory to some people, but... You know, a husband's love for his wife should be spontaneous, but that doesn't mean he doesn't need to be educated and how better to express his affection and to show that love. It comes from the heart, even if he has to be shown what he's doing wrong. And a wife to a husband and children to parents and in all areas of life, love may be spontaneous and yet love can be educated. And I want you to love the Lord and be spontaneous in your giving, but there does come a time to educate you about that too. And as I said, this is the day. So if you showed up today, uh, you're going to hear our once-a-year message about this matter. And I've chosen to preach this morning on the topic of a godly token. And in order to understand that, let me begin by explaining what a token is. A token is an outward indication that symbolizes something. A white flag is a token of surrender, right? But you notice the white flag is not the surrender. It's just the token of the surrender. And what you are surrendering when you raise the white flag is not just the white flag. I mean, you can be sure that the um, invading army would be very surprised, uh, the generals of that army would be very surprised if after they came in and took you, you said, well, all we're giving you is this white flag. That's all we're giving up. No, no, the white flag is token. It's a small thing symbolizing something beyond it and much bigger, usually. A Valentine's gift is a token of affection. But I don't think anyone who receives one would like to believe that that is the affection and that's the extent of it. It's only a token of affection. So you know how we use the word token then? Well, the word means more than just an outward sign of something, symbolizing something. The word token also and usually stands for um, 
an outward indication which is in itself partial and in many cases minimal. In fact, in some cases, hollow and perfunctory. We talk about token payments being made, uh, and a token payment is a small payment on a debt intended by the payer merely to acknowledge the existence of the obligation, but not to do much about it. So we call it a token payment. It symbolizes and points to the fact that there's this huge debt and that you acknowledge it, but you're not doing a lot about it. Well, beyond this, we speak of tokenism. Not only is a token a sign pointing beyond itself and usually partial for whole, but often the word token stands for something that is not just minimal, but almost embarrassingly small. Tokenism is engaging in a very minimal outward show of something, offering only a perfunctory indication of whatever it is that's being indicated. Sometimes uh, losing presidential candidates often engage in, um, sometimes they often do this, yes, they sometimes engage in what might be called a token congratulation of their opponent. You've seen that. I think we've recently seen that, as a matter of fact, where a losing candidate, presidential candidate in my illustration, might say, well, I congratulate and wish my opponent well, but I mean, it's, it's a token. It's minimal. It's going through the motions. It's perfunctory. When a company that is financially strapped finds that it has to um, uh, make a large cut in the pay of its workers, let's say a 10% cut in the pay of its workers, obviously not a, a union shop here, but a company that feels the need to stay in business and has to cut back on the pay of its workers to that extent, and then the management wants to show that it's heart and soul with the workers and identifies with their plight, and management cuts its salary by 2%. I think you can expect the workers to call that tokenism, right? I've noticed how students at school get into classroom trouble, <clears throat> and they're in a situation socially where they need to offer an apology, and often, and I think other teachers would acknowledge this, we get what might be called a token apology. Uh, the words are there, but you're not real sure whether there's a whole lot of substance. It's a very minimal, perfunctory performance, tokenism. Or I'll get students that, um, even if they're good in class, fall way behind in their grades. They've been irresponsible. They're facing failure. And they know Dr. Bonson has got uh, a soft heart, despite the outward reputation and the meanness that is supposed to characterize this philosophy professor. They know that if they come for help after school, he passes anybody who comes for help. I'm a softie. Even if their scores don't warrant it, I'll give them a passing score because they've made the effort by coming after school and doing extra work and so forth. Well, what will happen sometimes is that students will let themselves get in trouble and let this go and go and go, and then they get close to the end of the semester. I mean, we're talking many, 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 many weeks they're in trouble digging this hole, and then they'll want to show up for two weeks before the grading period is up and show a token interest in making an effort in the class and hope to be passed. Tokenism. We see it uh, in candidates, and we see it in uh, financial institutions. We see it in our students. We see it in our neighbors. Imagine you had a neighbor who in a in a fit of anger, and a fit of haste, made such a wide, fast turn into his driveway <laughs> that he comes right around and hits your planter. 
destroys the brickwork and all that, and for my illustration, your prized rose bush on top of it. The cost to you in materials might be nearly $1,000. The cost to you in terms of your own emotional grief over the loss of that prized rosebush might be incalculable. And if the neighbor were to come over the next day and say, listen, I'm sorry I, uh, I ran over things in your yard, and here's a box of candy, and walked away, you might sit there and think, boy, is this tokenism. Where's the offer to, play, to pay for the planter and replace the bush and everything else? In the recent movie, Scrooged, um, we have a, a modern, successful, and very wealthy, powerful TV executive, the Scrooge in the story, uh, portrayed as distributing towels as his Christmas gifts to colleagues and even to family members, his own brother, um, who were not in his favor. And we call those token gifts. Uh, one more illustration. I think there are times in life when um, it can really be said that one person virtually owes everything that he is and everything that he has to another individual, virtually. Think about a successful advertiser, perhaps, who takes a down-and-out high school dropout, shows him the ins and outs of art and advertising and how to manage a business and sets him up in a separate business sends some of his key clients to him, buys him a home and a car, puts him on his own, countersigns loans for him, writes references for him. And then down the line, eight, nine, ten years later, this benefactor runs into his own problems and hard times and loses his own business and needs a job of his own. Would we not feel it tokenism if the former beneficiary of his grace and mercy and bounty were willing to give him a part-time job for a month as a delivery boy in return for all that he had done for him. We understand then what a token is, and we understand what tokenism is, and how it's usually not something to respect, certainly not something to be proud of. And yet the Bible presents to us the tithe as a godly token. A godly token. Let me explain that. The Bible teaches us that God is the owner of all things. He's the owner of all things because of creation and providence. He's the creator. He made this world. He made the oceans and the seas and the dry land. And he made the trees. And he makes the plants that grow. It's because of his creative um, uh, power that we have food to eat and homes to live in and clothes to wear and joy in our lives. In fact, when Paul went to Lystra and preached, he brought about uh, the response of repentance because he pointed to the fruitful seasons and to the joyful times God has given you as the creator. God owns everything. You know, nothing you have, the clothes you are wearing, the car you drive, the streets you drive on, the home you live in, the things you set on your table, all the things in this world belong to him. He gives them to us as a trust. You know, that hymn we sang in preparation says it so well in the opening stanza, we give thee but thine own. Whatever the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone. A trust, O Lord, from thee. God entrusts to us part of his creation. He doesn't owe it to us. It's his. 
And so whenever we give a gift to the Lord's work, whenever we make an offering to God, we're only giving him back what is already his to begin with. The Bible teaches us not only that God's the owner of all things because of creation, is the owner of all things because of providence. Not only did he put this world here, but contrary to the deist understanding of things, he didn't wind it up like a clock and step back and let it run on its own. Day by day, God keeps this world running. Day by day, he makes provision for his people. You know, the, the seasons continue in regular succession because of God's promise symbolized to Noah through the rainbow. God is the one who makes provision. He sends his angels as servants. The winds are controlled by them, everything that happens. And so as the maker and the controller of all things, he is the owner of all things. The Bible also teaches us that everything we have, from our personal abilities and our opportunities, which none of us make for ourselves, from our abilities and opportunities to our material possessions and to our money in the bank, everything that we have comes from the blessed hand of God. What do you have that you have not received, Paul could say. That's a foundational premise in his argument. You don't possess anything of your own ability, of your own opportunity, of your own provision. It comes from God. The Bible teaches us beyond this that all men ought to love God with all that is in them and use their every moment, their every ability, their every possession to glorify and to serve him. What does the Lord your God require of you? Well, when Jesus was asked the big question, what does God want? He put it this way, quoting the Old Testament, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. That's all. Just everything. God wants everything. Total surrender. Give it over to him. So whatever your mental abilities are, whatever your physical abilities are, whatever your activities, your thoughts, your plans, your attitudes, your relations, everything, love God with that. Submit it to his kingdom and his work, the glory of his name. And the Bible teaches even beyond these three things that believers in particular ought to acknowledge. They're bought with a price. They owe everything to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How though he was rich, he became poor in your behalf, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That you by his poverty might be made rich. <clears throat> everything that we are as Christians because of creation and providence and God's demand of love and of beyond that his work of redemption everything we are everything we have is God's do you get that? And so now what kind of gifts should we make when it comes to our financial offerings to the church? You know, there's only one reasonable answer to that we ought to give everything Everything that comes into my pocketbook, I had to turn around and give back to God and say, it's yours. Everything. God owns it all. God has a right to everything we have earned, to every moment of our day, to every effort we expend, every word we speak, whatever it may be. We belong to him. Isn't that what baptism tells us? We belong to God. His mark of ownership is upon us. He has cleansed us. He has bought us back. We're his. And yet God does not ask that of us financially. The point is made in Scripture sometimes, as with the rich young ruler, 
that in principle the appropriate thing to do is to sell everything and follow Jesus. That point is made in principle. But you know, God does not lay that as a reasonable requirement upon us all. He makes a point in illustrating it to the rich young ruler, but he doesn't turn around and say, all of you, sell everything you have. Give 100% to the Lord. God asks of us what? A token. A token. A very minimal, embarrassingly small portion of the bounty that comes from his hand. 10%. That's what tithe is. He asks... um, a token, indication of our 100% dependence upon his generous blessing and of his 100% ownership of everything that we possess, he tells us in his holy word to bring a tenth into the storehouse. a token payment that we belong to him and everything comes from him. An indication that we truly owe him everything. He says just 10%. That's all I want. Of course, that's his tokenism, isn't it? Boy, if someone owed you a million dollars or even a thousand dollars and offered you 10%, you'd think that's tokenism. But God takes it, and here, a godly token. A godly one because it is acceptable to the Lord, and it's according to his direction. And so tokenism, by all reasonable assessment, yes, but a godly tokenism because God makes it our own. He directs us to give in this way. Now, the fact that it's a mere token doesn't mean it should be neglected, though. That's why we read Matthew 23 this morning. Jesus, in indicting the Pharisees, says, You Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Because, you see, you'll, um, you'll uh, tithe your mint and dill and cumin, and then leave undone the weightier matters of the law. Now, a lot of people read that and they say, See, tithing isn't important. These Pharisees, they were so concerned. Not only were they, you know, really caught up in this tokenism, but they pushed it to the limit. They even tithed on their dill. Have you ever seen dill? I'm not good in the kitchen, but even I know what dill looks like. And the Pharisees were scrupulous about 10% of their dill and their little garden vegetables. And Jesus said, but you hypocrites, you don't really understand what mercy is. And so he says, this you ought to have done, justice and mercy. And then he adds these words, and I'm afraid a lot of people miss, without leaving the other undone. Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to tithe. And he doesn't say it's wrong to go even down to your garden dill to tithe. He says you shouldn't leave it undone. But of course, you should understand where this stands in light of the full demand of God and the heart that he requires of us of justice and mercy. And so, yes, it's tokenism. It's a very small thing, and it's tokenism upon tokenism to tithe your dill. But Jesus says you shouldn't leave it undone. But I want to ask you this morning that if it's tokenism to give God 10% of our earnings, if it's tokenism, a tokenism that shouldn't be neglected, Jesus says, if it is tokenism, what is it? What is the word we should use for those who will not even give 10%? Tokens are merely part for whole. They're minimal indications. We may not think very much of those who engage in tokenism, but what do we think of those who won't even bother to indulge a token indication of what is expected of them? What if a losing candidate simply spurned giving even a perfunctory congratulation? 
We may not think well of one who just goes through the motions and says, well, congratulations, I wish you well. But what if a candidate says, I won't even say that? What if a management, uh, what, if, what if the management in a company whose workers took that 10% decrease in wages took no pay cut for themselves at all? Not even the token 2%. Said, well, that's tough. Workers 10 off, we continue, it's what we have. Through the government and give ourselves a raise. What if a disruptive student offered not even a token apology? Or if a failing student didn't even give the effort the last two weeks to do his homework? What if your angry, destructive neighbor completely ignored the damage he had done to your rose bush, not even giving that token indication of grief and remorse and restoration? What if instead of token Christmas gifts, someone greedily decided to give no gifts at all? What if the beneficiary of someone else's training and financial investment did not even give a token job in return to his benefactor, but simply ignored him altogether in his hour of need? You see what I'm getting at? The tithe is a godly token. Yes, it's a token. Admit it, God, it's only 10%. It's what you have asked. I give it to you. I know you own everything. It's only a token. But what if we don't even do that? What are we? What should we think of ourselves, who are everything to the Lord, if we do not take seriously even the mere token tithe which he asks us to give as godly indication of our gratitude to him? Well, the prophet Malachi had a word for it. He called it robbing God. It's bad enough that we engage in mere tokenism when we tithe and don't add offerings beyond that. It's even worse when we won't even tithe. And so God sends the indictment through Malachi the prophet to his people and says, you're cursed with a curse. <clears throat> How would you like it if the Lord this morning were to stand before you and say, Covenant Community Church is cursed with a curse? I think, of course, we'd, we'd probably cringe and get under our chairs, but we would want to know, in what way are we cursed? How, how are we cursed, God? The answer that Malachi gave God's people is, you're cursed because you rob God. What? Rob God? No one would dare to do I don't rob from my neighbors. When I get five cents extra change at the market, I walk back in and give it to the clerk. I'm not a robber. But you don't tithe. And if you don't tithe, you're robbing from God. You dare to enter into the very temple of God and to take from his bounty and from the ministry of his word and the love of his people and you don't even support that ministry with a tithe you rob from God there's a man who was in the habit of justifying his failure to contribute a tithe of his earnings to the work of the Lord's kingdom and what he would say in justifying himself is you know the dying thief didn't pay a tithe and he was still saved come up again he'd say well, you know the dying thief didn't tithe and he was still saved and well one day a friend responded very sharply but I think appropriately to that excuse by saying well the difference between him and you is that he was a dying thief and you're a living one you rob from God I know this is a tough message you don't hear it often from this pulpit but I'm not a faithful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ if I don't tell you the truth. If you're not tithing, you are a thief. If you're not tithing, 
I think you need to ask yourself two questions. Do I really, do I really have a gratitude in my heart for the fact that Christ has bought my life back? And secondly, do I really trust him to take care of me no matter what? Because it's either in the motivation, the lack of a heart that wants to support the work of the Lord, or even if you say, no, I really want to, but I'm just so afraid I can't get by, then it's a lack of faith that God will take care of you. You know, our failure to tithe is also a token, isn't it? Our failure to tithe is a token of the way in which we deny God his due throughout our lives in a wide variety of ways. I want to suggest to you, even of tithers, by the way, but especially those of you who are not tithing, if you're not tithing, my guess is that that's just the symbol in God's sight that you have entrusted him in a lot of ways that you're not obeying him in a lot of ways, that your love is not there in a lot of ways for him, that you're a half-hearted believer. If you don't tithe, my guess is you probably don't attend regularly the affairs of the church, that you don't attend regularly upon the ministry of the Lord, whether it's in this church or in private ways or in other, in other areas. You probably don't care that much about your lack of love for your fellow man your lack of love for God, your lack of zeal. I want to suggest that the, the failure to tithe, the failure to give a token of our gratitude to God is only a sign that we don't love Him and we don't trust Him and we live unto ourselves. Living thieves, all of us. All of us are thieves throughout our lives because we owe God so much and we deny it to Him. Not just financially, but in so many ways. We've incurred a great debt before the Almighty. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We have a great debt to be paid for our sins. And so what can we who are thieves do about this sin? Not just thieves of the tithe, but thieves of all that we owe God. What can we do about that? Well, do remember the dying thief now, because he died on a cross next to Jesus. And it was because of the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus on our behalf, the cancels our debt before God. We can hear, even this morning, the words of Jesus speak to us that we shall be with him in paradise because he died for thieves and sinners like ourselves. We need to trust his merciful provision. We need to live the life of faith and trust before him. If we're truly repentant for our lack of even a token of showing God that we care. True repentance and living the life of faith will call for a consecration and a rededication of ourselves, redirection of our lives. And when that comes to finances, which is what our topic was this morning, I think that means committing yourselves now to making a first fruits offering of the tithe to God. First fruits, you know why it's called first fruits? Because the very first fruits that come in are given to God. A lot of Christians have trouble tithing because they say, I'm going to pay all the bills, take care of all of our needs, which usually means Disneyland and a nice car and everything else, but take care of all of our quote-unquote needs, and then if I'm able to afterwards, I'll tithe. The Bible says, no, you offer to God the first fruits. It's a way of saying, God, I give you the first 10% because I believe that you'll take care of the other. Get in the practice of making the first check you write every month, your tithe or every week, however you do your finances. 
And we can talk about what you should tithe on. We, we preach in this church you should tithe on your net rather than your gross income. Some of you disagree with that. You think it should be on your gross. Preacher says, bless you. Do that. Tithe on your gross. It's all right. But I would be concerned today that at least the net, after the government takes without you touching it, that money out of your paycheck, whatever is given to you and comes into your coffers, the very first thing you do is you write a 10% offering of that and say, God, all of this came from you. Here's 10% back as a sign that I believe that and I trust you that everything will be taken care of. You know what the benefits of tithing are? Malachi speaks for God and he says, God's the all-sufficient provider. Not only did he curse Israel for not bringing the tithe, but he said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and prove me, says Jehovah Host, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive. I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake. Your ground will be fruitful and all nations will call you happy. God says, I'll bless you so much for this token offering of a tithe. I'll bless you so much that everyone around you is saying, look at that land of Israel. Look at the church of Jesus Christ and how those people are blessed of God. I do not say to you, give the money because God will give it back to you as though it's some kind of a really neat, infallible investment for your family. I detest that preaching. That is not the promise of God here. But to his people, he says, and that his corporate nation, which is an international body, the Church of Jesus Christ in this day and age, to his people, he says, if you are a tithing people, I will take care of you as my people. I know very well there are some families that tithe. Well, nevertheless, we'll have to have the deacons of God's people help them some future day. Your giving 10% does not mean God's going to make you personally wealthy, but he will prosper his kingdom. He will take care of his people and will be looked upon by all the nations and all the other religions of the world. And they'll say, what a blessed land, what a blessed people, a tithing people. The benefits of tithing are not simply personal and individual. I want you to imagine what the kingdom of God would be able to do in this world today, this week, if only the financial support and provision were there that God asked for the token. I hesitate to tell you this because I don't want you to go home and say, oh, well, maybe it isn't such a big deal. Our congregation, from what I hear, has a much higher percentage of tithers than just about anywhere else you look in the Christian world today. Our congregation does well, but our congregation robs from God. But we do well if you grade on a curve. Imagine if all the Christian churches that profess the name of Christ and said they preached the Bible this morning, if all the Christian churches in the United States of America and throughout the world, if all of the believers in all of those churches were to tithe, you know, there wouldn't be, at this point, I don't think there'd be enough managers available who could use that money profitably for the Lord's service. That's how far short the Christian world is falling. You know why the government is engaged in welfare? I'll get on my hobby horse this morning because I don't mind this. You know why the government does the welfare around here? Because Christians didn't tithe and bring it into the storehouse. This may surprise you. If all who name the name of Christ statistically in this land tithe, we'd be able to take care of housing and welfare and education and have money left over. And so the benefits of the tithe 
In this church, I believe you, and I hear you as a congregation say, there's so many things we want to do. We've taken on the school ministry. We want that. We want to see it grow. We'd like to start a diaconal ministry that reaches out to those who are unemployed and poor in this community. We'd like to start nurseries and take care of uh, pro-life causes and, and do all sorts of things that I can go on and on mentioning that you really want to do, and the only reason we don't. As a congregation, as a presbytery, and as the Church of Jesus Christ corporately is because we don't tithe. It's just a token. Won't you give a token for God?